I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Joining me today is psychotherapist Julia Go Ballin, and her new book is Rewrite, a trauma workbook of creative writing and recovery in our new normal. Not long ago, cognitive behavioral therapy and medication management were the mainstays for trauma-informed care. Now, patients and clinicians alike are seeking deeper, more somatic and holistic attachment theory-based forms of treatment to rewrite the trauma narrative, such as somatic psychology and EMDR. The pandemic brought about significant changes in our stability, sense of community, and political and economic landscapes. Because of this added stress, we're all experiencing a heightened level of sensitivity, resulting in multifactorial trauma responses, an impact that spans nations, ages, and socioeconomic status. Do You Go Balan focuses on the healing journey of the trauma survivor, utilizing easy-to-use methodologies for long-lasting effects. She specializes in intergenerational trauma, having developed her expertise while working in New York City, treating patients on society's margins. She is a contributor to the medical textbook, Big Book of Emergency Psychiatry. Welcome to the show. Do you go? Thank you so much. <laughs> it's an honor to be here. Thank Great you. to have you here. So as I said in the beginning, today we're talking about trauma and uh all of us are experiencing a trauma. I would even, I sometimes refer to it as PTSD as a result of the uh, pandemic. And yes. uh, yeah, and experiencing it in different ways. So let's start with trauma and the kind of trauma that you're talking about. Uh, individual trauma, trauma, it's almost like a cultural trauma, right? I, I mean, here in worldwide, globally, I guess, as a result of COVID and the pandemic. So, um, what are we talking about in terms of trauma treatment? Let's define trauma for each one of us, or you define it for us. Yeah. So trauma uh, is actually it could be uh, acute trauma. So it could be one single incident, like a car accident, or it could be enduring circumstances, like living in a dangerous neighborhood or uh, being in a pandemic or a war or being a victim of abuse. And in my part of practice, I mostly see a trauma that is not just one event, but a series of events. Um, so not isolated to one single incident. Uh, and then there's also trauma that's uh, often overlooked. And these are uh, attachment injuries, such as being in toxic relationships or uh, having emotionally unavailable parents or highly critical parents or bullying. These uh, have a really adverse effects on our uh, sense of self, but are maybe not really labeled as trauma. So given all those examples, how does this fit into the book? We're going to say utilize your book so that if we're experiencing one or all or many of those traumatic situations, how do we go about utilizing your book to help relieve uh, our trauma, our personal trauma? Yeah. So the book started, the reason why I put it, that why we put it together was because during the pandemic, the need for mental health services escalated so much and it wasn't always so accessible. And I saw that even in my own work. And I wanted to extend the therapeutic process beyond the 50 minutes. So uh, often I would give writing exercises and grounding exercises to uh, people that I was working with because, um, because 
all the extracurricular activities or social networks were really no longer available or accessible, people were just spending so much more time with themselves and thinking about their condition and thinking about their symptoms and maybe researching it online or looking uh, at social media for uh, their symptoms. And that was very misleading and led to a lot of self-diagnosis that was actually really worsening their symptoms. So uh, I wanted to put together something that kind of weaved in theoretical information that was accessible and easy to digest along with strategies that someone could use to heal and understand their own trauma. Could you give us an example, let's say in the book, of a specific kind of trauma and then how one would use it using the exercises that you have in the book, uh, as I described earlier, you know, easy to use methodologies for long lasting effects. What can we do depending on what our trauma is? Give us an example. Yeah. So I worked with a lot of parents during the pandemic who were in the home with their children who didn't have childcare, who didn't have system, who didn't have uh, family support. And for many people, actually, this was very traumatic and a difficult time. Uh, Also, some parents, especially uh, those who had experience of childhood trauma, um, started to get re-traumatized and uh, their children were in some ways triggering their old trauma and old wounding that was maybe either healed to a degree or uh, repressed. So um, many parents actually uh, came to me and talking about how the pandemic was affecting adversely their, and triggering their childhood trauma. So, the, so the, uh, the book, for instance, has a lot of uh, information about tra- family trauma. So it's uh, kind of psychoeducation, if you will, but also has a lot of writing prompts. So, for instance, uh, what we want to do is we want to understand the triggers. So with the writing prompts of uh, even even noticing and being able to track the patterns of what triggers you is is really important information. And then what helps? What kind of things can you do to... Uh, regulate yourself in a nervous system level. For instance, there's breathing, a lot of breathing exercises that help with this uh, and also a lot of um, kind of body exercises because when we're in a state of alarm, we tend to tense our body. We either arch our backs or we um, lock our jaw. So when we bring awareness to these part of, parts of our bodies and intentionally relax, then our, the, then our body will slowly go back into a calm state where we can make rational decisions, where we can use our coping skills, where we can process our feelings. So that's in many ways the goal of the book. And there's a lot of exercises and a lot of case studies too that kind of um, will, will be informative in that sense. All right, let's talk about one of the case studies, because I always, you know, as a social worker, put a face on it and it makes it more real. You've described the process, but let's put a face on it. Give us a case study. Give us an example that's in the book. Yeah. So one uh, example is um, that I also talk about is, uh, for instance, with with a mother and child interaction with a toddler. Uh, you know, toddlers can be impulsive and they uh, can, uh, they don't really have the words to express their feelings yet, or they don't even actually know what their feelings are yet. We teach that to our toddlers. And um, I was uh, like a parent would get really dysregulated 
with the tantrums. So one time when, when the toddler threw a toy, uh, she, the mom got extremely triggered and it reminded her of her own uh, traumatic past. And this was actually uh, probably not one incident, a series of incidents that uh, got her triggered. But in that particular incident, she had this memory that she didn't have before. And uh, she, she just got very emotional and bursted into tears. And then she was very ashamed of her reaction because as parents, we have this idea that we always have to be at our best ourselves and we always have to demonstrate, you know, regulated emotions and be calm. And she felt really guilty for being so emotionally um, expressive and so tearful in front of her child who just started crying more when her, his mother was crying. So she started journaling and she started writing and she started uh, writing about her memories and, and not just the events that happened, but also the emotions that were attached to the uh, memories. And through that, she was able to heal her inner child and uh, all the things that were not unexpressed or all the things that she couldn't feel because when we're in traumatic situations, we can't really experience our feelings. So she was able to feel through them and that actually really changed her relationship with her uh, kids as well because then she was much more, once she understood her trauma and once she understood her triggers, she was able to negotiate life around her triggers much better Um and that, that's a case that actually feels very rewarding to me because then it also kind of stops the cycle of trauma and the uh, intergenerational trauma. Yeah, when you talk about the intergenerational, I want to talk about uh, the intergenerational trauma. This mother, in other words, when her toddler or other children started acting out, she was she was then, having gone through the process that, that you just described, was able to recognize her, that this is a trigger for what happened to her in the past and then not, I, I don't want to say fight back, but not react emotionally in a way that was detrimental, let's say, to the child or even to herself so she could control her behavior. Is this what happens? You become aware this is something that happened to me in the past and what's happening to me now is very different. You know, my child acting out or having a tantrum or a meltdown or, or whatever and being able to kind of mitigate that horrific or those horrific feelings that she, she had or has. Yes. So it's this, this, uh, definitely the understanding that this is not my life anymore. I'm not in danger anymore. I'm safe. I'm an adult. I can protect myself. I can be there for my children. That's the new narrative that she uh, was writing to herself. And the goal is never to not be triggered because we are going to be triggered. The goal is more not to, to react from a place of where we're triggered or dysregulated, but to notice our triggers and for them to be just nuisances, like things that are annoying, you know, oh, like I'm triggered again, kind of that. That is what uh, the goal is. And then to be able to say that and once you're aware, that's actually, I think, most of it. Most of the work is exploring and being aware of your triggers and then you figuring out ways that um, work to uh, release the tension in your body and um, kind of maybe take a moment, take a break, remove yourself for a few minutes. These kind of things uh, come afterwards, after the awareness. 
Don't you think you find that also a lot in couples therapy when you have couples coming in for marriage counseling, for instance, uh, and the relationship between the two of them is not going well. And a lot of it has to do with the triggers that you've been talking about, the relationships in the past, and they begin to interact based on those relationships. Um, that, 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 um, I, I don't know. I, I think I've, I've seen that uh, a lot or frequently. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. It, it happens a lot because we also recreate our stories. So uh, these narratives that keep happening, we, we start re- recreating them in our relationships. Uh, for instance, if there's a history of abandonment, uh, early abandonment, uh, we gravitate towards people who might be emotionally less available. And then we constantly reenact the same story. So I see this in couples therapy a lot, uh, where, where people uh, trigger one another's childhood woundings, and I call it stepping into each other's wounds. So the goal there is for me to help people understand uh, their backgrounds. So a lot of us m- maybe talk about our childhoods or our past and our early attachments, but we, don't, we maybe don't talk about it in a way that uh, we can understand how we react in certain situations because of the stories we grew up in. So uh, that kind of aware, awareness of the early attachments, of how our partners related to their early attachment figures is really informative, actually, and really enlightening for truck couples and actually changes the way they relate to each other and the way that they regulate one another. How long does this process usually take, let's say? Let's say you get a couple, the example that we've been talking about, who comes in, who has the issues we discussed or we are discussing. Uh, when we talk about a treatment modality, are we talking about, what are we talking about in terms of time? What's the time frame for uh, being able to understand what's going on and to, as a patient, and then act on it? It's very specific to the individual and the couple, I think, and also depends on on what they want to uh, work on and what they want to uh, get out of it. But I think in in terms of working on ourselves and the journey of healing and the process, that's we always work on it, and we always there's always room for growth and more insight. But I would say for people to actually uh, move through a crisis or move through uh, something that really interferes with the way that they communicate, that um, depends on how much work they put in it. Like it's because it's not just the session. So being able to use the tools that, at least trying that, at least trying to use the tools that we practice during the sessions to outside of therapy, that will move the process much quicker and and the desire for change. I think when we are more invested in the change, then the change happens quicker, or at least we come to a place that's more manageable quicker. So we're talking about using these methodologies and uh, with our friends, for instance, because you're going to have issues with friends and at work with colleagues, with bosses, I would assume that, that a lot of these same issues, you know, if you have a, a, a poor relationship with your father for whatever reason, and then you have a boss who's a man and uh, it triggers, I would assume, uh, the same kinds of feelings and emotions with your boss as you had with your father and can Im- impact on your job in a negative way. 
Yes, definitely. That that's definitely happens. I think the the most important piece of this is knowing that. Because we live, uh, many of us uh, live without even knowing what our triggers are. So it's because triggers can be really subtle. It could be just a micro expression, our eye roll. It could even be a song, a music, or something, or a setting. So I think the most important part of it is to understand how this person that we're interacting with, whether it's a friend or a colleague, triggers us. What, do, what stories get activated? So we want to be able to uh, react from the present moment. So, in the, uh, uh, so a lot of times when we get triggered, we react from something that happened in the past, which is why the emotional reaction does not match the current circumstances. So when we know what stories are getting triggered and how we're getting triggered, then it would be, it would be easier for us to react to that mo- in that moment of what that moment calls, the, the amount of reaction that that mo- moment calls for instead of really reacting or being hyper-aroused. What about, you know, and I'm, I'm thinking about the pandemic because you have people isolating quarantine in, in, in apartments and that with uh, let's that's and and then also perhaps it, it with it, with grandparents parents kids you talk about intergenerational issues that could trigger all of those things so it's really or a, a toxic toxic situation um how did people in i mean you've seen uh, people since obviously you know, and you have perhaps a couple and a grandparent and, and then the child and, and all this stuff is happening. It's uh, how do people, have they been able to kind of crawl out of this brew of emotions and, 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 and do what we would, you've been talking about and, and get healthy emotionally? Yeah. Um, I mean, I think so. I think we humans are very resilient so, of course, there are still a trickling effects of the pandemic. We still experience a lot of the anxieties and fears, I think, and also a lot of the social uh, difficulties still continue in, to a degree, especially for children. I mean, it was, a, it was fearful to go to the grocery store. And, you know, even though adults may have, have template, templates of what it, normal life was before, but for children... That wasn't the case. So their adjustment and not having school for a long period was, uh, of course, uh, needed a lot more support. And for those who have resources, of course, things were easier. The transition back to um, kind of school and work was easier. People who had families and communities and were had more access to mental health services. But those who didn't, I think that was uh, more challenging. Marginalized communities um, over, o- overlooked, uh, were of, often overlooked, uh, and in, the, in this situation, uh, overlooked as well. And uh, I think open communication and connect connection to your family members was what saved a lot of people. Because we human beings need each other, and we need to be in connection to one another. So family support or having uh, really vulnerable conversations with those that are around us, in my experience, what I saw was what actually helped people through these very difficult, challenging times. 
You know, that's interesting because I've been thinking about the fact that a lot of marginalized people who were forced to live in very, you know, small surroundings and living in apartment buildings, how, albeit with a lot of other people, that those that they may have had more connections with other people just because they were forced to, as opposed to people living in the suburbs who really isolated themselves, quarantined themselves, didn't have any contact with with neighbors or uh, and that that was detrimental in the same way that it was detrimental for the kids not being able to go to school and to see other kids and other families and and, you know, that's a, and, and being able to have those kinds of experiences. So could it in some ways um, been helpful for some of these communities where people were forced to be together in conditions, not great conditions, obviously, but um, and be less isolated, let's say, from from their fellow neighbors or, or friends or colleagues. I think it's really difficult to compare. Yeah. Uh, you know, compare trauma, compare pain, compare, it's impossible. Uh, so everybody's experience was different. I think, yes, there was a lot of uh, families that, you know, were forced to live together. So the grandparents moved in and these kind of things happened. And that so that was, uh, for many, community building happened during that, that time. But there's also, uh, for many, and this is undeniable, domestic violence uh, went up. Uh, abuse went up. So uh, this is, it was definitely in that sense, very adverse um, for many people. Yeah. So there is that delicate balance for all of us. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> we don't, yeah. We don't want to be overburdened with, uh, with people, but at this, our connections or living with people necessarily, but we also don't want to be isolated uh, how does yeah? So how does this? Because I kind of alluded to it in the beginning when I uh, read the intro, and we were talking about cognitive behavioral behavioral therapy, medication. How does this fit into what we've been talking about? Yeah. So so the the way trauma treatment, as you mentioned in your intro, has changed uh, significantly. In the past, trauma treatment was more about. Uh, talking about the trauma, uh, kind of like the idea was telling is healing. And now we know that that's not really true. Now we know that uh, when we re- uh, talk about the trauma, we might actually re-traumatize re- re- uh, the people that we work with or ourselves. So it's it's important to understand the difference. And that's why trauma treatment is now changing and moving more towards somatic approaches approaches that target the body and healing in a nervous system level rather than the context of the events. And, and I think uh, the things that we're talking about is really connected to this because, um, for instance, the trauma might not necessarily even have a story. We might, we might be traumatized from an event that happened to us when we were a baby and we don't really have the verbal description of it. Or it might be a traumatic experience that we had, but we repressed it completely so we don't remember it, which happens a lot. But we still can work on these issues. We can still have understand the emotional, uh, what the emotional reaction associated with these events. We can still understand the triggers, identify the triggers, and we can still move through a more regulated, calm place. 
So with uh, working through nervous system, the breathing, body, grounding techniques, and uh, emotional creative expression, we can get to a place of healing in our relationships. This is also for couples and um, individual work both. We can get to a place of healing with you, without the context of the story, actually, without even having to tell the whole story. So in other words, we're talking about meditation, staying in the moment, those kinds of exercises? Yes, definitely. Meditation, uh, uh, mindfulness exercises, self-compassion exercises, uh, any kind of movement actually is very releasing, like dance. Um, there's a lot of dance meditation, dance movement, which is very helpful. And uh, any creative expression, uh, uh, we use writing in the book because it's accessible, but actually any creative platform, painting or knitting, any creative platform actually really helps allowing expression for these feelings and emotions that have never been expressed before. Well, great talking to you today. And obviously, there's lots of good information and much more information in the book. Um, and I've been talking to Do You Go Ballin, and she's the author of a book, A Psychotherapist uh, in Practice. Her new book is Rewrite, a trauma workbook of creative writing and recovery in our new normal. So could you do you go? Could you please give us a, a website and or other sources of information so that we can uh, get more information about the book and about the work you're doing? Thank you. Thank you so much. Sure. My website is my name, Dweevalen dot com, uh, and there's a newsletter there that I post a lot of uh, events and uh, and um, news about what I, the things that I'm doing. And then um, also I'm on Instagram. Um, so, and Facebook. So, um, I'm easy to find. Great. Thanks so much for being on the show today. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Mm-hmm. 